Welcome to today's Community Cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You're so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. So this morning, we're starting a new sermon series, and it is called What We Believe. And we've done a sermon series very similar to this before. And in the sermon series before, we talked specifically about the things that United Methodists believe that make us different. Uh, specifically, those things are uh, involving the vows that we take as United Methodists. What are those things? We, 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 we vow to uphold the life of the church, to support and love the church through our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our and our witness, right? So in all of those five things, so in our, our previous sermon series, we talked about what we believed. It was kind of those general things um, dealing specifically with United Methodism. And today is going to start a sermon series that is in response to what's happening in Methodism. And so it, initially you're going to be a little bored because I'm going to read words that I have written out specifically because I don't want to vary too much because I don't want to be misheard and I certainly don't want to be misrepresented. So as you, as you know that our denomination, the United Methodist Church, is fracturing, but what you may not know is that the United Methodist Church is only a church today in the 21st century because of the fracturing and splintering of other denominations and the breaking apart and joining of other churches that happened sometimes as far back as centuries ago. Just like the issues facing us today, if you pay attention, you can see this pending church split playing out throughout different spheres in our culture. And now I am most familiar with the Facebook sphere of culture because that's where I get a lot of my news about our denomination from clergy Facebook pages, from United Methodist Facebook pages. And so when I mostly turn to those Facebook groups where United Methodist clergy seem to be able to rant unfiltered about their thoughts on the church and what's going on, I also get to see what many of these pastors say that keep me informed about my denomination. I, I, by that, I mean informed, right? Because everybody has an opinion. And these opinions on our latest, you know, split and, and fracturing regarding the news of the church uh, sometimes are hard for me to read. Almost every single day I get mad because people who seem to post the most often and make the most noise about the reasons for the split of our church, they're fabricating lies. I would guess that most of you know that at this time, the United Methodist Church is separating mainly because of differing understandings of issues surrounding human sexuality. And today I want you to better understand the stance of the United Methodist Church so that you are clearly informed. And I have that so you can read it together with me this morning. Our current United Methodist Book of Discipline was written in 2016 and then was readjusted in 2019. Um, there were some punishments that were added to the book of discipline regarding human sexuality and pastors who um, perform gay marriages in the church uh, in order to punish them to make sure that they no longer do gay marriages in the church. I want to read to you what the United Methodist Book of Discipline says today about human sexuality. It says this, We affirm that all persons are individuals of sacred worth created in the image of God. All persons need the ministry of the church in their struggles for human fulfillment as well as the spiritual and emotional care of a fellowship that enables reconciling relationships with God, with others, and with self. 
The United Methodist Church does not condone the practice of homosexuality and considers this practice incompatible with Christian teaching. We affirm that God's grace is available to all. We will seek to live together in Christian community, welcoming, forgiving, and loving one another as Christ has loved and accepted us. We implore families and churches not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. We commit ourselves to be in ministry for and with all persons. These words are very clear in what they say. The main reason that this stance has become such a problem in the church is the way that pastors and activists have responded throughout the years. Since this is the stance of the Book of Discipline, it means that as a result, the church will not allow congregations to be led by LGBTQ pastors and will not allow our pastors to officiate LGBTQ weddings. And another firm rule is that weddings of people who are not heterosexual cannot be held on church property. And this has been firm since 1972. This has not changed. Every four years at General Conference, people try to change it. And as of yet, it has not changed. There are, however, pastors who ignore these rules and have been brought up on charges and in some cases have lost their credentials in the church and they are no longer pastors. Some people want this stance to change, to be more accepting of LGBTQ, LGBTQ persons, while others believe that there is no room in the church for LGBTQ persons. And as you can imagine, this divide has caused a strain in the Methodist church for the last 50 years and now there are people who no longer can believe that we live, that we can live together as one church. And over the last few months, as I have been hearing more about this impending split, the language of those who wish to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church has changed. And while it's clear that the issue of human sexuality has been the main line of contention for those who seek to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church, there are voices that have changed the narrative to bring focus away from that specific issue and to raise a new issue. What is now being raised as a sort of red herring is that pastors in the United Methodist Church no longer believe in or preach the basic Christian tenets of faith. It's an accusation that hurts my heart because it is unfounded and the bishop in our Oklahoma Annual Conference has also said it is not true. So somehow this conversation regarding human sexuality is now being ignored. The people who initially wanted to leave because they cannot live with pastors who marry LGBTQ people are now saying it's not about that anymore. It's the fact that people are not being brought up on charges. It's the fact that now when pastors say they don't believe in Jesus, they don't have any repercussions. Friends, the reason pastors are not being brought up on charges for those things is because it's not factual. There are places that weed out people who try to become United Methodist pastors who do not believe in things like the divinity of Christ, things like the resurrection of the dead, things like the, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. There are ways that we keep people who don't believe what we believe as United Methodist pastors from becoming United Methodist pastors. That's why there aren't pastors being up, brought up on charges for those things. So while the conversation regarding human sexuality is being ignored and now attacks are being made on the orthodoxy of Methodist pastors by other Methodist pastors who seek to leave the denomination, it's a problem. In the realm of the United Methodist clergy Facebook pages, the new cool move is to accuse pastors of not being orthodox enough. And I know that a lot of you guys don't get to see that 
And it's probably not on your main radar every day. For me, as somebody who works in the church, who has uh, pledged to support the church and to love the church, and I serve the church every day, it's important. So there's this accusation that Methodists who want to remain in the United Methodist Church are not preaching things like the divinity of Christ or the resurrection of the dead. So some of these other pastors are accusing Methodists of leaving orthodoxy and preaching something else, something not Christian. And the accusations make no sense. Of course, the United Methodist clergy preach orthodox beliefs. I don't know if you've been a member of our church for a long time or if you have been here a couple of times, but if you notice when I preach, I preach from the scriptures. And I don't want there to ever be any confusion about what the Bible says, so it's up there for you to read it. I encourage you to bring your own Bible and pull it out and read the words along with me. I don't make things up. I don't share things that are not accurate. I preach the word of God as I understand the word of God. And let me be clear, I don't get it all right and I don't get it all the time, but I do believe in Jesus for sure. And I believe that Jesus changes lives. The word orthodox means that one's beliefs conform to what is generally or traditionally accepted as right or true, established and approved. And these accusations that other Methodist pastors make against the uh, Methodists who want to remain Methodist reminded me that some people will believe anything they hear over the internet. Not only that they hear it and believe it, but they accept it as absolute fact. And then it will continue to be spread. And soon there's this wildfire of accusations that United Methodism is leaving Orthodox Christian faith. And I'm telling you, that's not true. So in response to those who would accuse the United Methodist Church or United Methodist pastors or its clergy or its, you know, representatives of heresy or an incorrect teaching, I want to take a few weeks in order to show you that that is not true. I want to speak specifically about what it is that we as United Methodists believe and especially what we as a church believe. I don't want there to be any confusion about where we as United Methodists stand in our belief in correct and ancient doctrines of the Christian church. So to really get us ready this morning, I want to read to you an illustration that I read, written in a sermon by Dr. Justin Eimel. He was, uh, well, he is a, a Church of Christ pastor, and he's an author and a professor. And here's what he says in his sermon on church doctrine. He says, an, an artist was doing some paintings for a Chinese king. The king asked him, tell me, please, what is the most difficult object of all to paint? Dogs, horses, and the like are the most difficult to paint, the artist answered. Well, then what's the easiest to paint? The artist answered right away without hesitation, the easiest are definitely monsters and ghosts. Well, why is that so, the king asked. Because the dogs and horses are things that we see every day, the artist replied. Thus, we are familiar with them. If one draws them in the least bit unlike real dogs or real horses, people can easily point out their faults. As for monsters and ghosts, we have never seen them, so they have no definite shape in our minds. Therefore, they are the easiest to paint, for who can say whether the resemblance is close or not? 
because one could easily use an objective standard, a real dog or a real horse, by which to measure the artist's work, those were the most difficult objects to paint. While objective standards make the artist's work more difficult, objective standards usually make things easier. When I'm preparing a recipe, and the recipe calls for a cup of onions or a tablespoon of olive oil, I know exactly how much to add to the recipe. When I stop for gas, which I hate to do because it's really expensive now, I know the pumps have been examined and I'm receiving a gallon of gas when I pay for a gallon of gas. If you buy three yards of material, you're going to get the same amount if you go to Walmart or Joann's. There's an objective standard. For us as Christians, our objective standards, our objective standards of orthodoxy are our Christian creeds. We can know when a church or a pastor or a televangelist goes off base in their preaching or teaching by comparing what they say to the ancient creeds of our church. And while we don't believe that the Christian creeds are sacred in themselves or infallible, we do hold them as a rule to which we can objectively measure orthodox Christian belief. Guys, this is important, right? And I know that we don't do things in here super traditionally, but every traditional element of a United Methodist Church is present in our church every week. We do communion. We take up an offering. We spend time in prayer. We spend time worshiping God. We literally open our Bibles and read scripture. These are the things that cause the order of the church to be so important. And none of that is different whether you go to a traditional United Methodist Church or the most modern United Methodist Church. Those elements will be there. And when it comes to this fight for orthodoxy, it's not something that's new. It doesn't just happen today because people can't live with themselves anymore. Like We can't live with our Christian brothers who disagree with us. This is a new thing in the church. We've traditionally been able to live together well and respond to one another in love. But there was a time in the church, and there's always been times in the church, where we've battled it out to see what is the most authentic, what is the most right, what God wants for us It happens so often. But the first time we see this actually happen in Scripture comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 15. And I want to read this together today. If you've got a Bible, you can pull it out. I invite you to make notes. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 35. Here's what the Scripture says for us today. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see what the apostles and the elders said about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. 
God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders of God and done uh, and had done amazing, sorry, about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's, David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from the food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat, strangled, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letters. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men to send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with a blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. This is called the Council of Jerusalem. This is the first time that orthodoxy was set. It was right practice and right belief matched up so that when the, the message of Jesus Christ was spread to the Gentiles, people who were not practicing Jewish law and tradition, that they could come to an understanding of Jesus without being burdened by having to do some pretty intense things. And it wasn't just about circumcision, although that is a pretty big deal as an adult, come to find out, Right? It was also about the rules and the laws that they had to uphold and abide by. Could you imagine, like, being in an Oklahoman, right? What do we love? Like, we love hush puppies and catfish. Could you imagine not being able to eat catfish for the rest of your life because you believe in Jesus? No, that is a life I'm not willing to give. That's not true. I don't really care that much about catfish, but that's just one example, right? 
There's a lot of things that are ascribed to people who are Jewish that we don't follow anymore because of this council in Jerusalem. Not every male is circumcised. Not every person follows the dietary laws and restrictions. Not every person goes to the temple or uh, to the synagogue on a regular basis to offer burnt sacrifices to God anymore, right? Like that's, that's, this council changed that for us. And this was shortly after Jesus was gone. There was already contention about what was right belief and right practice and what wasn't. And that has not changed. We still have people who want to challenge what right belief is and what right orthodoxy is. But the great news is we do, in fact, have a rule that we can measure our faith against to make sure we both believe and practice our Christian faith in ways that honor God. And these kind of rules, these measurements that we can you know, measure our faith against are called the Christian creeds. And today I want to briefly talk about two of them. So the word creed comes from the word, the Latin word credo. Does anybody know what credo means? Anybody? Why don't you guys speak Latin in here? The word credo means I believe. In other words, a creed is simply a summary statement of what someone or a group believes about something. Creeds and confessions are both attempts to summarize the teaching of the Bible in regard to what is right and specific in its doctrines. The purpose of establishing appropriate creeds and confessions is that they allow us to define our faith and solidify our positions on what the Bible teaches us. It's a summarization, summarization of what we believe in words that we can hopefully all understand. It's super important to realize that while creeds seek to clarify and define faith, no creed ever supersedes the scripture. So I want us to look today at two specific creeds. The first one is the Apostles' Creed. Many of you, if you've been a United Methodist for long, you have probably recited it over and over and over uh, when you were growing up in a service that you went to as a child. Okay? If not, this might be new for you. But this is the most ancient of our creeds, and we believe it was written somewhere around the year 150. Let me say that again, 150. This is one of the oldest creeds that we have. And while the disciples and the apostles didn't actually write out the creed, we believe that it is a summarization of what the apostles taught and believed. So if you want to, I'm going to encourage you to read this with me. This is the apostles' creed. And it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and in the life everlasting. Amen. There's a lot in that creed that is important and vital to our faith. And in this church, we believe those things. If anybody ever tells you that United Methodist pastors don't believe these creeds, it is a fallacy and inaccurate. 
The Apostles' Creed was not really written by the apostles, but we believe it's an encapsulation of what they taught and what they believed. And this particular creed would have been used during baptism to make sure that the believers who joined the church knew what they were getting into, right? Like today, we take vows of baptism and vows of uh, membership into the United Methodist Church. And this, for them in the early church, was their vow. They recited the Apostles' Creed and they knew it from their hearts because they didn't want to be swayed into something that wasn't Christian, that didn't glorify Jesus, that wasn't about God and his incarnate son, Christ. This creed served as a sign of unity. And while there, I'm sure, were minute details in the way that the Christians believed or in the way they practiced their faith, the important parts of their faith would have represented this creed. They wouldn't have all agreed on every social issue. They wouldn't have all agreed on every time there was a problem in society, but I guarantee they would have believed these words. As the church continued to grow and reach new areas around the world, the church struggled, struggled to maintain unity, especially because of the struggles in the early church where Christians couldn't actually speak out their minds. Because a lot of times in the first few centuries, the church had to hide because the church was being destroyed by people who didn't believe. There were martyrs. There were Christians who literally gave their lives to make sure that these creeds were taught. And even today, we honor that sacrifice. Later on in the early fourth century, the church gathered its church fathers together to write a new creed, one that would again unify all believers in right belief and practice. It was meant to root out some heresies that were beginning to pop up around the Christian world. Under the direction of an emperor of the Roman Empire. Anybody want to take a guess who that emperor was who united the church? It was Constantine. Look at you. How about a Twix? I'm not going to throw anything at you today to avoid breaking the <laughs> computer. Last week I, I may have missed and broke the mouse. It's fine. Um, so, do I, it was a good hit. So under the direction of Emperor Constantine in the year 325, there was a council called together and all the bishops of the church the, of the, all around the Christian world came together. And part of uh, the, the story around it is that so many of these Christian fathers were scared because they had already been uh, martyred and traumatized. And some of them had been beaten for their faith or some of them were missing eyes or missing their tongues or missing a hand because of the punishment of the empire. They were afraid to show up initially. But almost every single bishop of the Christian kingdom came through and, and had some sort of a scar on them. And as a result of this particular council, it was called the Council of what? Nicaea. Nicaea. All right. So listen, I'm going to get some. There, there. Who else said Nicaea? You didn't. There you go. <laughs> you, well, if you want something else, we'll trade later. Gosh, you're so picky. As a result of this council, we got the Bible, friends. In the year 325, our canon was set. Our canon is our um, sacred book, right? It's the Bible. It's called our canon. Uh, all 66 books of the Old and New Testament were chosen at this point, and our canon was set. And then we came up with what, not we, but they came up with what we call the Nicene Creed. 
This creed is one of the most fundamental statements of Christian faith, and all Christian churches should be able to agree upon this creed. So let's look at this creed together. And again, this was written in the year 325, but I will tell you, there was a, a few additions that were made during the Council of Constantinople in the year 381. So either way, this is a solid fourth century creed. And here's what it says. You don't have to repeat this. But it says, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. There's a special word that we use when we talk about of one being with the Father. What is it? Homo Homo-ousius. I'm not giving you another candy bar, but good job. Yes, you might. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let me be very clear. When we talk about the word word Catholic, notice it is a... What? There is an asterisk, and it's also a small c. So we're not talking about the Catholic Church. What? Candy. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Bowling. All right. That was my wife needed candy. Thanks. Um, So the small c means that we're not talking about the Catholic or the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about a universal church, that the church of Jesus Christ is universal and it should look relatively the same all throughout Christendom. And these two creeds make up the foundation of all Christian belief. And even when the church throughout history has forgotten and disagreed and and had problems with each other over the different aspects of that faith, even when there were disagreements about women becoming preachers or African-Americans being welcomed into white churches, the creeds have never changed. The current disagreement about LGBTQ uh, marriages in our churches or pastors who would be gay, the creeds don't change. Right now, even in this moment, our book of discipline has a clause that says we will neither add add to nor take away from the, the ancient creeds of our Christian faith. Friends, this is who we are. And while our book of discipline is in this kind of weird state where we expect there are going to be changes that are going to be made, we expect eventually there will be full inclusion of LGBTQ folks in our congregations. But that doesn't change what we believe about Jesus. That doesn't change what we believe about God and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't change what our church fundamentally believes or is. So over the next few weeks, as we dive deeper in the sermon series about what it is that we believe that makes us specifically United Methodist, these creeds are going to be the basis of what we talk about. Now, we're not going to dive in and like, you know, pick out the words and what they mean and all that, but we will use them as a foundation for what it is that we talk about in here. 
These creeds should be used as a way to unite us in our faith with one another. And no civil situation, no social issue, no disagreement is bigger than the truth that is found in these ancient words of faith. Even in our disagreement, the truth found in the Bible still stands. And guys, I would challenge you that when there's disagreement, we have over the last few years come to this place where it's you against us, right? It's no longer, hey, can we come to an agreement? Hey, can we, uh, what is that when you guys, oh yeah, it's called compromise. We don't do that anymore. We just say, you disagree with me and I'm done. When for generations, we have lived together under the same roof. For 50 years, the United Methodist Church has believed differently among itself and now we can no longer live together. And it's hurtful. It's hurtful to us as a church. We're losing a connection with our downtown campus. We're gonna be losing connections to many youth pastors that I have done ministry with for almost 20 years and now who are pastors in their own churches who are gonna be disaffiliating from the United Methodist Church. And it breaks my heart that I'm not gonna be in ministry with those friends of mine who I've loved and watched grow up and have families and seen their ministries blossom and grow because we can't live together anymore. As we dive deeper into these creeds and into our faith, I want you to come along every single week with fresh eyes and fresh ears to both see and hear the truth of the gospel for us. As we explore what makes us unique through the United Methodist tradition. So this week and always, friends, may each of us focus on the work that God has called us to instead of divisive language. May instead of making accusations, may we be people of peace who bring about unity in the way we speak about our brothers and our sisters. May we each be disciples of Jesus Christ so that we can make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. That is what we're called to, not disagreements and not shutting people out of the kingdom. May we tightly bind ourselves with the word of God so that we may be able to fully live into the truth of these most ancient beliefs of our church. And may we seek to put God's word first every single day of our lives so that we can truly understand God's will for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And may we continue to love our neighbors always. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com, or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.